Hi, everybody. This is Terrifying Questions and How Not to Be Terrified by Them, a podcast uh, that deals with philosophy and comedy and uh, deals with terrifying questions and tries to help us reach a point where we're less terrified by them. Uh, I'm Eric Kaplan. I'm a Hollywood writer and a uh, uh, philosopher. And I am Taylor Carmen, and I am a philosophy professor at Barnard College, Columbia University in New York City. Uh, and we're really lucky and fortunate uh, today um, because Professor Kate Mann is joining us. Welcome. Thanks so much for having me. It's great to be here. Um, so Professor Mann uh, is a professor and writer at Cornell, um, and she's the author of a book that uh, you should go out and buy right now called um, Unshrinking, How to Face Fat Phobia. Um, and that's out now. Um, but I came across uh, Kate's work uh, when I read a, a great article that cited it, which made the point, um, hey, people say that when people are cruel and exploitative and hurt people, it's because they're dehumanizing them. And it cited your work and said, no, one of the things humans like to do is to hurt and exploit other humans. And I thought that this was such an honest, good point that I rushed out and got your book, um, down girl the logic of misogyny um and this really cleared up a lot of things for me in a way that i like philosophy to do because i had been kind of stuck with the conceptual problem i was like well well do misogynists hate women sometimes misogynists like women mm -hmm. what the heck and and it confused me and it made it harder for me to identify misogynist beliefs and thoughts in myself and others um and then i read the book and i thought it was a really good philosophically rigorous and illuminating account of misogyny so i liked that a lot uh, and then and then i emailed you I, I don't often send fan letters but i sent you a fan letter <laughs> and you were kind enough to respond um and uh and now you're on the show so i'm really happy it's actually to have people like you on the show is one of was one of the inspirations for, uh, for having the podcast so i'm really glad you're here Oh, thank you so much. That's really kind of you. And yeah, I'm really glad to be connected with you both and with your listeners. Um, so the question I, you know, we posed this a couple different ways before we started, but I think the question is, is it okay to be fat? Yeah. So I love that question because it's quite stark and blunt. And I have a very unambiguous answer to it in this new book, which is, yes, it's totally fine. It's totally permissible to be fat because many of us are. And among other things, there's not a whole lot you can do to change your body size and type in the long term. We've been kind of duped into believing that we can diet and exercise and possibly take weight loss drugs and that that would be a long-term solution to the supposed problem of fatness. But it turns out that over the long term, weight regain for most people is pretty inevitable. Over about a five-year period, most dieters regain all of the weight and then some. So one of the basic principles that I draw on philosophically is a kind of modified ought implies can principle. And that's a principle that if you can't do something, then it's not the case that you ought to do it. And the kind of variant of this principle that I'm drawing on here is that if it's not really under your realistic and feasible control to make your body a particular size and shape, then it's not the case that you ought to do that and seek thinness in a pointless and often harmful and frankly quite unhealthy way. Rather, I'm espousing the message that I think we should be more accepting of body diversity and the fact that we do just partly genetically come in different shapes and sizes. 
So that's part of the argument that it's okay to be fat. There's not a whole lot we can do to control our body weight in the long term. Um, really, really convincing meta-analyses of all longitudinal diet studies show that people just regain weight that they lose over several years. And the other piece of it is, and I think this is worth emphasizing too, even if there was some kind of chosen element to fatness, um, which, you know, I'm not ruling out in some cases. I think there are some people who, for example, really love food and who might choose to eat copiously and well and adventurously, and they choose to have a uh, live-to-eat mentality rather than an eat-to-live mentality. And even if fatness is, in some respects, chosen in particular cases, we let people choose all sorts of lifestyles without much ethical comment when they choose things that are potentially risky, such as Grand Prix racing, such as mountain climbing, such as being someone who gets tattoos or piercings or tans their skin. We have this kind of attitude of acceptance to people living in a diverse range of ways that may involve some health risks, but we regard people as entitled to live their lives and to take on certain risks that come with choosing lifestyles that may be important to them. And we do that when people are presumptively fit and thin and non-disabled. So why shouldn't we do that when it comes to those cases in which someone is choosing to have a somewhat larger body, maybe does take on certain risks as a result of this, although I think those risks are often exaggerated, by the way, we can get into that. But why should we be so quick to morally condemn someone for taking on a few extra health risks when we're actually quite tolerant of that if taken by presumptively thin bodies. So that's kind of two parts of the argument that it's actually just fine to be someone who lives in a larger body and many of us inevitably will. I like all that and I like the ought implies can thing. If I can just push on that a little though, because yeah, any, please. So anybody who stops eating is gonna, I mean, eventually gonna get thinner. Mm. Um, so there's a way in which we can strictly speaking Right. Yes. <laughs> so, yeah. uh, and somebody who's a really hard liner about obligations, if they had mm -hmm. the, what I think would be crazy notion that people have an obligation to be thin, they could always say, well, it's not the case that if something is difficult, you have less of a moral obligation, because lots of things you have a moral obligation to do are hard. And mm -hmm. how is it different from the case of like a gambling addict? I think probably we need to take those questions separately because I think okay. we're getting into some territory about the notion of food addiction, which is really controversial and interesting. Okay. So to kind of backtrack to Taylor's question, okay. it's quite right that it's not strictly speaking impossible to lose weight. It's very possible to lose weight in the short term through any number of diets. What this modified ought in place can principle that I'm advocating is, is something like, you need to demand things of people that are realistic and fair to demand and mm -hmm. also don't demand that they take measures for the sake of health that are actually unhealthy in themselves. Mm -hmm. So I'm someone who, after being on endless numbers of diets, I mean, just every diet known to mankind as someone who naturally is just prone to fatness, um, I eventually just stopped eating, just as Taylor, uh, you know, mooted that thought experiment. I stopped eating and spent more days than not over a couple of months simply fasting because it seemed much easier and, in fact, the only viable way, given what dieting did to my metabolism, to lose weight. 
But the point of that is that it's not a reasonable thing to demand of someone for the sake of thinness, which mm. is supposedly for the sake of health, in part because it's such an unhealthy way to live. Yeah. So the question is, what can we feasibly, fairly, morally demand of each other for the sake of thinness? And I think we see when we look around us and when we take a compassionate view of dieters, myself included, we see that thinness demands too much. It demands more than is reasonable to ask of someone, such that this modified order implies can principle, which says you can't ask something of someone that they will find practically impossible to incorporate into their lives in a healthy way. Um, that's the kind of principle that I'm relying on, but Taylor's quite right. It is this more expansive principle that asks us not to demand too much of each other, including not demanding that people take extreme measures like weight loss surgery, drugs that are not known in terms of their costs and side effects in the long term. The fact of the matter is that there's really no feasible, fair thing to ask of people right now that will make them thin in the long term that is sustainable, healthy, and is compatible with a good life. So mm -hmm. I think on those grounds, it's it's not a fair demand of someone. Now, to get to Eric's interesting further point about addiction, I think that addiction is itself a very interesting topic. But what I want to emphasize for listeners is that Psychologists like Lisa DeBrail, for example, who works in this area, really emphasize that food addiction is not a real thing. Uh -huh. um, sugar addiction is a really common notion, too. Again, sugar doesn't have the kind of addictive properties that drugs do, that gambling demonstrably does. It's certainly a rewarding substance. People certainly enjoy sugar, and we see that in lab rats and we see that in human brains, too. But it doesn't follow that that rewarding substance is actually well conceived of as addictive, so much as what other people working in this with uh, clinical experience suggest. And here I'm drawing on work by people like Christy Harrison, who's an anti-diet nutritionist. They find that the sense one is out of control around food is often actually rooted in restriction. Mm -hmm. So when we're teaching children how to eat, if parents adopt a philosophy of not being very judgmental, of having, you know, with the uh, requisite financial and social privilege to do this, putting good nutritious meals on the table and then having a fairly low key attitude towards them, children will learn to regulate their appetites, learn to take a balanced approach to what they eat. They will get an adequate supply of nutrients short of special feeding problems over the course of a day, a week, a month. And what gets out of whack is when diet culture really has this uh, pressure that it puts on us to shrink ourselves, that's when people start to feel super restricted mm. around food, really restricted around certain types of food, and that's when we find food takes on a sort of allure that it otherwise wouldn't and comes to dominate our thoughts too much. So it's not so much that some people become addicted to food. It's that some people have probably dieted too much, restricted too much, and so become more obsessive than they otherwise would be about something which hopefully we can teach the vast majority of children to regulate themselves in a way that is pretty low key and not um, 
going to lead to obsessive food thoughts or anything like food addiction if we just take a more relaxed attitude and one rooted in values like bodily autonomy rather than trying to strictly control the size of our bodies. So does that make sense, Eric, that this is just no, It a, does make sense. Yeah. I, I guess what I wonder, though, is, um, and, and I've been on this path myself. I've, mm -hmm. I've like, um, I gained weight over the pandemic, and then I got an app on my phone named Noom, mm. and I tracked calories, and I tracked um, exercise, uh -huh. and I did lose around 20 pounds, and then I gained mm -hmm. them back. And yeah, and and, and um, but but I can't help wondering, like, when I go to Romania, everybody seems to be thinner than in the mm -hmm. US. And when I look at pictures of people in the US from 50 years ago, everybody seems to be thinner. So w what's going on? If it's not within my control, how come those other people can handle it and I can't? Well, I wouldn't want to suggest that you can't handle something. Maybe your body is naturally a little bit larger than society might deem acceptable. That's just a gentle suggestion to maybe be gentle on yourself. Um, mm -hmm. I would say that, look, some of what we've seen a kind of moral panic about in the U.S. is actually a little bit disproportionate. So there's no doubt mm -hmm. Americans have gained some weight over the last couple of decades. No one really knows exactly why. So there's obviously going to be a part of it that it has to do with a calorie abundant social environment. There's obviously a part of it that has to do with a lack of access to leisure and spaces to exercise. There's obviously mm -hmm. a part of it that's to do with stress and certain modern pressures, but exactly in what proportion and in what ways precisely, that is something still being really actively debated and debated not by people like me as a philosopher coming in on the moral questions here, but by scientists and epidemiologists and medical researchers. So that's one piece of it that we don't really know why people are getting fatter. But I also will say that the uptick in fatness while an interesting question has sometimes been exaggerated in the US context because of things like the American Medical Association and NIH and so on, um, increasing uh, or rather uh, changing the threshold for what constituted an overweight or obese uh -huh. BMI in 1998. Mm. So millions of people became quote unquote overweight on a single day in 1998 without gaining any weight yeah. when without gaining a pound because the threshold was moved from a BMI of about 27 or 28 depending on gender to the threshold of 25 and there was no good medical reason for this shift oh really it was huh. just done because it was thought to be easier for doctors and patients to remember the 25 number and in fact, a lot of research by the brilliant CDC scientist, Catherine Flegel, has suggested that when it comes to mortality statistics, the healthiest BMI to be at, the lowest mortality statistics, that's associated with having a BMI that is in the overweight category. Oh, no kidding. So that it really raises the question over what weight? I happen to be in that category myself, having become smaller than I was previously through this extreme dieting. I'm sure, by the way, I'm going back to a heavier weight, but that's a process still unfolding in a bodily sense. But the point is that there really isn't a good scientific reason to hold that people in the quote unquote overweight category of the BMI should lose weight, partly because we know that when people lose weight, they tend to regain it very quickly. That sounds like it might've been your experience, Eric, and it's certainly been my experience. It was. And that 
losing and regaining weight turns out to be independently harmful for our health. Hmm. So that's called weight cycling, and it's associated with poorer cardiovascular function. It actually increases the risk of type 2 diabetes. Hmm. It's associated with poorer immune function, and it has mental health costs, apparently. Hmm. So based on this research, it's just not clear that people who are in the overweight or even moderately obese category who have no greater mortality risks than quote unquote normal weight people. The question is why should we be shrinking ourselves when A, we'll probably go back to the same weight or even higher a weight because people tend to overshoot their previous weight when they regain weight. Mm. And it doesn't seem clear that losing the weight would be healthier for our bodies as opposed to maintaining weight, which seems to produce the best outcomes, even in large longitudinal studies of populations with type 2 diabetes. So those are the people most advised to lose weight. And these big studies tend to show they do best when they maintain their weight. So there's a lot of counterintuitive science in this vicinity that I think we need to be cognizant of and quick to be people who are reflective rather than reflexive about Mm -hmm. what works for the human body. Let's take a little break, and we will be right back in a second with Kate Mann. I, I was in Weight Watchers, and I've just absorbed a lot of uncritical yeah. stuff, which I yeah. believe from you is probably no just false. Yeah. <laughs> I've, I've simply taken on board a lot of false. <laughs> okay. So are we already back on the air? Or are we? Um... I don't know if we are. No, let's go back. Hey, we're back. <laughs> we're back with, with Professor K. Mann of Cornell, author of Unshrinking, How to Face Fat Phobia. Um, so there's a question that I wanted to ask, which is, um, look, I'm, I'm married, so in a sense... I could look like garbage and and it kind of wouldn't matter. But (laughs) imagine I wanted to look good either just because I feel I would look good in meetings or, you know, maybe my wife finally got sick of me and I needed to find a new partner or or I was single. And, And I sort of think like a guy in an Italian suit looks really good. And and a guy wearing the kind of floppy extra large T-shirts that I wear doesn't look as good. Um, so maybe I need to lose weight just so I'll look good. What do you think of that? What should I do about that? So some really interesting data suggests that fat bodies are not inherently found unsexy at all. So part of the argument for this is historical. There's obviously a huge precedent in art for particularly fat femme bodies to be found very beautiful. But I also want to point to the fact that when it comes to searches in pornography, Fat bodies are one of the most common search terms. So, fat men. There are people searching fat guys in pornography. Actually, I'm thinking more of fat women. But <laughs> fat women. There's okay. A taste well, it's a gen- for everyone on the internet. <laughs> it's a gender. Plenty issue. of people find fat issue. men very hot, and it's just hmm. not an inherent something to do with sexiness. It's about status. So it's much more that fat bodies are lower status, partly because of these associations that 
I show in the book drawing on work by the sociologist Sabrina Strings and the cultural critic and fat studies scholar Deshaun L. Harrison, they've shown very clearly that fatness is associated with blackness. And so a lot of the low uh -huh. status mm. aspects of uh, fatness have to do with it being a kind of proxy characteristic that allows us as white liberals, especially thin white liberals and progressives, to practice racism and classism that is now verboten in our circles by practicing fat phobia. So Paul Campos puts it this way, we wouldn't as white liberals or progressives feel comfortable derogating a woman who goes into a Walmart who is Mexican-American for those characteristics of being female and Mexican-American, but we do feel comfortable derogating her for being quote unquote morbidly obese. Oh, huh. And it's not that her body is found inherently unattractive as porn searches indicate. It's that her body is associated with, in fact, a marker of being low status. So I would say in a way, when it comes to the dating market, being fat does have real costs, but it is also a brilliant bulwark against assholes who want you for your status and not because you're an interesting, fun, sexy person. Hmm. So in a way, like, it's actually a great way to filter out people who I would argue are not worth your time. A good recent example of this is this song that made a lot of waves a few months ago, The Rich Men North of Richmond, which is a kind of populist, hmm. sort of right-wing, but not... Uh, establishment conservative song that's sort of anti-elite, anti-rich, and and uh, he became very popular. But the song, the line in the middle of it, which really ruffled a lot of feathers, which is really ugly. Uh -huh. It really turns into scapegoating, which is this line about the short. But when you're five foot three and you're standing in the checkout lane and you're eating your fudge rounds, then the government shouldn't mm. be the people's taxes shouldn't be paying for your the food you're eating. It's total, really ugly yeah. fat shaming kind of reactionary fat shaming and classism and probably racism classes but you're exactly right it's exactly sort of shaming the class and the weight mm -hmm. and all this stuff mixed together it was really ugly this is why that song really made people think this is total reactionary garbage really <laughs> he has a that pretty is good, super yeah, interesting yeah. and as someone who doesn't even scrape to the five foot three level <laughs> part of the reflection yeah. that has gone into this book is I'm a short, fat woman, and my body has been incongruous in the academy since the time I entered it. Uh -huh. yeah. So the ways in which I have intellectual authority and also a huge amount of unfair class and institutional privilege as a white woman who was raised as the parents of an academic and a writer, I have had a body that people have viewed as incongruous in the academy in a way that make my intellectual voice be seen as a weird mismatch with my body. And that's so silly. It's so irrational yeah. and it's so exclusionary of people who are just as, if not more, adept at doing the kind of intellectual work that we all do. So we're missing out yeah. on a lot of fat talent in part because we associate fatness with certain kinds of social and intellectual properties that are derogated really unjustly 
And so we use fatness as a way to exclude people from certain kinds of conversations to which they might make very vital contributions. So that's part of what is in the background. And, here. you know, this is mm -hmm. not a very recent thing, because even though there have been ages which were not nearly as sort of uh, skinny obsessed as late 20th century has been, mm -hmm. uh, fat shaming goes way back. You're probably familiar with I just was listening to a podcast. Uh, what was it called? It's the uh, I think it's called Dig podcast that had an episode about the history of fat and they were referring to the oh. work of Christopher Forth huh. um, yes yeah and he said uh, uh, this is the Greeks used to shame the Persians for being sort of fat and animal-like and lazy and and Tertullian apparently said that if you're skinny you've got a better chance of getting into heaven you'll, you'll just sneak <laughs> in there whereas if you've got too much flesh you're weighed down by the flesh and by sinfulness uh. and so on so yeah. so you should make yourself thin so there's a christian ascetic version of this fat shaming i thought you don't have bodies in well heaven. but what's he what's he I mean, on about uh, I, how metaphorical was he letting himself well, i be? guess he could he yeah. could say that i think you're body how you yes. treat your body while you have one could affect your chance of being an i think it's soul. a moral I mean, judgment I mean, about your sinfulness is you're indulging the needs of your body overindulging your bodily needs so you get weighed down literally with flesh but that's a sign of your lack of spiritual uh -huh, purity uh -huh. and that but not for plato and aristotle no. so i agree yeah. there has been like little pockets of fat shaming all throughout human history yeah. but it's been a more ambivalent relationship sure. towards fatness until about the mid 18th century when fatness began to be associated with blackness uh -huh. completely spuriously but then yeah. the putative association of fatness and blackness was used as a pretext for the white bodies being superior in white supremacist racist thought to the black bodies who were being enslaved so brutally uh -huh. so it's not that fatness was first derogated across the board and then fatness was associated with blackness it's much more that blackness and fatness were first associated and then fatness came to be derogated shortly thereafter as a way to justify white racism and increasing brutality in the burgeoning transatlantic slave trade. So, for I mean, look, in human history, we do certainly find pockets of fat shaming and ambivalence, but we also find pockets of really derogating very thin bodies. And for Plato and Aristotle, they were extremely down on gluttony, mm -hmm. but they observed that, and this is actually quite enlightened of them, that a glutton isn't necessarily fat yeah. and a fat person isn't necessarily gluttonous. Uh -huh, so a mega or very large body wasn't a reliable sign of what you eat, which is in fact empirically accurate. There are plenty of fat people who don't consume more than their thinner counterparts and vice versa. It's just not a very reliable guide to what someone consumes to look at their bodies. So yeah, I would say that there's a history there that isn't perfect by any means, but the really systematic fat phobia is a mid 18th century on phenomenon. And Eric, well, to get back to your other question mm -hmm. about the Italian suit business, this yeah. wonderful thing about clothing is that we can make them to fit our bodies. Huh. So clothes are available in many sizes <laughs> and having myself huh. recently hired a body neutral stylist uh, to help me find clothes that work with the now middle-aged body that I have, which is actually not as fat as I would have expected at this point in my life, but my fat has kind of redistributed and I have a more apple shape, whereas I've traditionally been very hourglass. So I'm kind of trying to find clothing that works for my body. I just think it's wrong. And maybe an example of not being I want to gently again say not gentle enough on yourself to think 
what clothes would be perfect that my body could fit in rather than mm-hmm. remake the clothing that's much easier get a great tailor no i kept thinking i kept thinking oh well i i need to get down below 200 and then i'll get a great tailor get it now but that goal seems to be fleeing <laughs> as i approach it <laughs> i think a great tailor and a great suit can just do wonders for confidence and okay. there's just no reason to think that beautiful clothing should be reserved for a particular body type or size. I think that's a wonderful thing about what we're seeing happen in fashion is that we're also seeing this part of it, which is that I had this uh, student send me a tweet that I end up quoting in the book, which is that the fat body can also be this beautiful set of or site of possibilities in fashion. Mm-hmm. There's just more flesh there to play with, to mold, right. to turn into fantastical artistic possibilities. Think about the delicious heft of a burlesque dancer. Think about the amazing bikini poses of Nicole Byer. Think about, I know she's a bit cancelled, but think about Lizzo's incredible work and Flesh just begins to look not shameful, but like a sight of real possibility and wonder and maybe beauty. Beauty doesn't interest me that much in a way as a property of human bodies, but yeah, maybe artistic expression and self-expression. And I, yeah, again, just gently want to suggest find clothing that makes you feel fabulous and find a fabulous tailor who will work with the body you have. Okay. Okay, I'll do it. Um, one thing I guess I I wanted to ask was, in your philosophy, you do much more self emotional self disclosure mm. than, let's say, um, Donald Davidson, who's a, <laughs> a teacher of mine. Oh, come now! <laughs> yeah. I know um, all about so, his personal life. No. <laughs> so, right. what was that like for you in the academy? Like, how does it feel for you to get up at a philosophy conference and say something where people might be like, "Oh, she's just saying that because she's fat," you know, or yeah, or she's yeah. a woman, so she's crying about how tough it is mm-hmm. to be a woman. Like, that must take a lot of courage. And how have you navigated that? Well, I appreciate the question because I think I do get certain reactions like that, and they're obviously painful and will continue to be painful. But the way that I think about it is that there's a real value in seeing diverse bodies stand up proudly Mm -hmm. and be part of a tradition in philosophy that, look, I have a lot of problems with philosophy, but I also really value it. I value it in part because we're a discipline where you can disagree with anyone about anything, more or less. I don't think that all of those disagreements are necessarily fruitful, but some of them are. And I think I want to stay in it partly because I love being in a discipline where students learn. You do not have to look like a particular kind of person. You do not have to look like a thin, wealthy, white, non-disabled, hetsis male in order to have ideas that are worth listening to and airing. And so in order to do that work, I really have to walk the walk a little bit Mm -hmm. and stand up there in a soft femme body that, look, in one way is very unremarkable. I'm a middle-aged white lady and I am not very fat. But then again, someone who is very fat in my discipline would have likely been silenced out of it. That is the confronting truth. And I want to make philosophy more inclusive and such that students who have a diverse range of bodies can feel comfortable in the discipline and don't feel like they don't belong in ways that I traditionally have. And if I feel that way, then people who are more marginalized in virtue of their bodies will be even less likely to join our ranks. 
So mm-hmm. yeah, it's a little bit about representation. And it's also this sense that there is something so irrational and so obviously false about the idea that a certain kind of body is the vehicle or the house for the best ideas. It's just not true. We're, so we're missing out on a lot. There's some nice counterexamples I was going to say earlier that um, nobody, even his enemies, seemed to hold it against Socrates that he was fat, although everybody <laughs> said he was fat. And I think you mentioned David Hume, too, in your op-ed. In yeah. The... Oh, good yeah. point. Good poll. Yeah, but do you know there's this comment, Taylor, on a in a textbook, an introductory textbook that is widely used, mm. that the lightness and quickness of Hume's mind was almost entirely hidden by the lumpishness of his appearance. <laughs> it's That's just hilarious. so silly. Yeah, it's, it's so completely ridiculous. It's so fat phobic. Yeah. Yeah. It's completely ridiculous. No, it wasn't. Here's one counterpoint. It wasn't, <laughs> it wasn't hidden at all. <laughs> the lightness Indeed. and quickness of his mind was evident to everyone. What about the <laughs> ampleness and expansiveness yeah. and brilliance of his intellect? Yeah. Like, we could choose our intellectual metaphors differently. <laughs> Why not the great fat mind, as Carmen Maria Machado Uh puts it? Why not explore this idea that intellect should be giant and expansive and ample? Skinniness could be an image Mm -hmm. of intellectual poverty, too, sort of like um, shallowness and prickliness. You could think of fat as as energy reserves, right? (laughs) And actually, that's not entirely false, just in the fact that it's true that, look, the health picture for fat people is complicated and I don't want to suggest that this is a simple matter but there are many illnesses where fat people are somewhat more likely to develop them if they're fat but then more likely to survive them if they get them Mm. because fat Ah. seems to be somewhat protective Mm. against the risk of wasting away due to severe illness and that's very unsurprising if you think about it it is an energy reserve particularly for women So there's really interesting work by Kat Bohannon in her book Eve that came out last year, where she looks at basically women's butts. Our butts and hips are repositories of special fats that have special properties that are basically very useful for a developing fetus. Mm. And this is, of course, Mm. true of other bodies too, Mm. some non-binary bodies, some trans male bodies. So it's not a gender essentialist thing. She's very clear about this. But yeah, some bodies have fat that is really, really freaking useful. Mm. So she regards it almost as an organ. It's an extension of our liver, basically, rather than it's just this redundancy Mm. in human design. So yeah, there are ways of thinking about fat that are both more intellectually respectable, that are more metaphorically playful and expand our possibilities for thinking about fat minds as something wonderful. And there is scientific reason to think too, that we should be careful about how we think about fat rather than make knee jerk assumptions that we should just try to get it off of our bodies as if it's all quote unquote spare flesh. Some of it's actually uh-huh. kind of needed. Interesting. I can, I want to ask you a little bit about what you've said in the past about um, the morality of say diet culture and obsession mm. with diets and losing weight and being skinny and fat phobia. How much of a moral obligation do we have one way or the other? I mean, part of what you say is you don't owe it to anybody else to be thin. Um, and I think you even say you don't owe it to anybody else to be healthy, maybe even. So there's a very mm-hmm. individualistic part yeah. of this argument. But you also say that maybe there's something not just bad, but morally wrong about diet culture because of the pressure it puts on people to conform to mm. these unrealistic expectations. And I'm wondering what kind of moral obligations come with this critique of 
diet culture. Yeah. Right. Do you have a moral obligation not to have an eating disorder in the other direction? Yeah, I think not. Partly, again, because of an what implies can principle. It's not fair to demand of people that they recover from illnesses that are actually extremely difficult to recover from, hmm. especially for things like atypical anorexia, which is more common than the typical counterpart. Anorexia is the same across both the atypical and typical categorization. By the way, it's just that the so-called atypical variety involves not being underweight because not everybody will get down to a low weight when they're not eating or eating vastly too little calories for their bodies. But yeah, I don't think there is any individual obligation not to diet exactly. I just think it is really morally pernicious to have a practice or a culture that tries to pressure people into doing something with a sense that there is this moral obligation to shrink yourself that there really isn't. So my line on this is you're entitled to do what you want with your body to a large extent. I wouldn't say you have no obligation to be healthy. I do think people are obligated, for example, to take small and fairly non-invasive measures that secure their health because we live in a society. So things like getting a vaccine, things like wearing a motorcycle helmet. I would say those small, pretty non-costly measures are obligatory because we live with others in a society. But by and large, I do think it's up to us what we do with our bodies. I wouldn't be morally critical of someone who diets. Mm -hmm. I wouldn't be morally critical of someone who has an eating disorder, certainly. But I do think that the culture that foists on people these pseudo-obligations to be smaller, to shrink themselves, mm -hmm. that is where the moral criticism belongs. Good. So yeah, great questions about where I try to level the moral condemnation, not on the individuals, um, but on the practice. So this is a very much love the player, hate the game kind of thing. Right, line. right, right. Good. Mm -hmm. um, let's take a break and, and then we can come back. We can, during the break, we can talk about what we want to talk about after the break. <laughs> can I say, we'll be right back. Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> always wanted to say that oh you can say it yeah we'll be right back i'll say one thing and maybe i'll say it again which is when i'm doing a lot of work i like to have a big pile of cookies and yeah. just go through them because it helps me. Yeah, focus. It helps me calm down. Yeah. <laughs> and same and I've same. often thought that this is wrong. <laughs> um, <not>. So <laughs> you're gonna. It's wrong after three cookies. It's funny. Like I feel like um, I'm just I'm just uh, uh, Taylor's doing the philosophy here. I'm just doing uh, therapy, which feels, which feels somewhat <laughs> embarrassing. But um, it's just fine. The... If you're taking a lot of effort to do something, then you probably need to not be expending a lot of effort in the direction of restraint. It's just how we work. Interesting. Look, I didn't do that in the book because the willpower as muscle stuff didn't really hold up empirically. It's very disputed, so it's not in the book. Oh, but yeah. it is an interesting metaphor. There's a reason it caught on. I think there must be some truth to it, even though the empirical stuff is a little mushy and all over the place right now that i'd like to know more about that there's that weird study about the marshmallows yeah, which i was always suspicious of that's different because, because it's it about cited too much <laughs> so that has been criticized on different and very interesting grounds that the kids who went for the marshmallow were probably basically food insecure or at least didn't mm -hmm. have ready access to treats 
And so, right. of course, that's going to correlate with better life uh, outcomes. The kids who could, or if they, by the way, I should put it this outcomes. way, if they restrain themselves, they probably have a lot of food security and are not too worried about treats and have the trappings that that suggests. So it's really not causal. It's correlation. It's. I always thought that was something really creepy and judgy about that experiment. I didn't know yeah. that it was. Yeah. yeah but, uh, this uh, reminds me of Thorsten, Thorsten Beblin, of sort of like, you familiar with him? No. He came up with the theory of the leisure class. Yeah. And he I said mean, a lot of yeah. what the leisure class does is like a lawn is a way of saying, I've got so much land. I've got so much security. I can take land, which should be used to grow food and just waste it. Um, <laughs> yeah, and, totally. And in a sense, yeah. if you diet, you're like, I've got so <laughs> little things worrying me in my life that I can come up with this weird project of being skinny because everything else is fine. It's kind of a way of bragging oh, about how yeah. good your life is. And even rock climbing, it's like, yeah. uh, you know, you know how good my life is going. Yeah. I'm going to spend all my life trying to climb a wall with my fingers. And it's a, it's sort of a <laughs> brag about how good my life is going and how high status That's I hilarious, am. And I'm Eric. doing this completely, completely because I find it sort of like intuitively noxious. The idea of a rock climb is like, really why would you do that? Why it's would so, you? So you're afraid I know I'm of never going to actually fall off a cliff. Yeah, <laughs> but I can pretend to be climbing a cliff. That's really funny. But there yeah. is something real in there too, which is that like part of the story is racism, but part of the story is as getting thinner became more difficult financially in a calorie abundant social environment, then of course it became more high status. So whatever mm, is more difficult to do yeah. with the bodies that we tend to have. So now it's really difficult mm. to be thin because you probably need, you know, an expensive Peloton and an expensive salad delivery meal kit and, <laughs> you know, air one smoothies <laughs> and stuff that's just not accessible to a very wide class of people. So that becomes very high status because it demonstrates that you have both the time, the leisure, and also the sheer fucking money to do it. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So that's a big mm -hmm. part of it. It's what I call the harder, better fallacy that that which is harder to achieve becomes vaunted as morally desirable and a sign of virtue when no, it's it's just about it being more, um, I suppose, a sign of and then constitutive of being higher status in society. Um, now, how can we get people off of the harder, better fallacy? Because because I think that's a terrible thing. Really I'll give is. you an example. My yeah. my kids were in an elementary school and they were graded on how well they did and how much effort they put into it. And I thought, oh, no, if I was in fifth grade, the mm. amount of effort that I would have to put into doing the multiplication table would be zero because I know how to multiply. Mm -hmm. And then I would get a bad grade on effort. Why would we, how can we, how can we get rid of this notion that effort is good? I think clearly effort mm. is, is either neutral or bad because it's, you know, it's tiring. It's no fun. Yeah. I'd rather yeah. achieve everything we can achieve effortlessly if we could. Well, I do think children probably need the message that they should persist. So there's something mm -hmm. in that grading system that is perhaps not well expressed, but is probably onto something that we should re reward, not talent, but you know, persisting in things that are hard, something like growth mindset, yada, yada, blah, blah, blah. Ah, However, the idea generally that the harder it is, the better it is, is really pernicious. So we see this in all sorts of areas of life where, for example, um, to go to a case that's close to my feminist heart, breastfeeding is really difficult for most people who do it. 
there aren't a lot of benefits to the developing uh -huh. infant. Um, there mm -hmm. may be some in terms of a little bit better immune stuff, a little bit better gut health, but over the long term, it's much of a muchness with formula if you have access to clean water, which is, of course, a very big if for many people, including in America. But if you are someone who has access to clean water, formula is fine, according to big analyses. Yeah. And uh, this is me summarizing someone like Emily Oster, who's gone in and looked at the research very carefully. But because it's so hard to breastfeed, people have this attitude like it must be so important for the developing baby because mm -hmm. it's so hard to do and actually doesn't look like that's mm -hmm. really the case empirically. Again, not to say there are no benefits, but the benefits are quite modest. There's also a great myth that you can't do both. What, oh, of um, course you can. Yeah. Absolutely. Right. But they but there are groups who will tell you that no once once they go to the bottle they'll never go back or they'll have what's what used to be called I don't know if they still talk this nipple way confusion. nipple confusion yes um, anyway that mm -hmm. turned out from my experience as a parent to be yeah, completely it's just false completely false yeah supplementing yeah. is fine yeah. formula feeding is fine breastfeeding is fine these are all good ways to go it just right. turns out that the important thing is to feed adequately and that that requires yeah resources um by way of either the time and sustenance for a breastfeeding parent or it by the way of clean water and financial resources to formula feed or just as you say taylor a mixture of the two is 100 yeah. percent fine the point is just it's really hard to get people off of this because if you spend so much effort and do something really hard it's it's really awful to be told probably the easier way would have been absolutely right. as good or nearly as good even. So part of this is just recognizing the fallacy of it and saying, look, I get that you're slugging away, eating really undelicious food, and a lot of dieters are trying incredibly hard to shrink themselves via means that are often involve significant amounts of deprivation, sometimes real suffering in terms of hunger. And someone like me who's coming along and saying, look, maybe you should just let your body be the size and shape it wants to be, and that that would be fine. I'm going to get a lot of resistance just because what people are doing on diets is hard. Right. But that doesn't make it better. You know, I think um, there's another cynical right. motivation behind this, which is selling mm -hmm. the hard regimen. Part of selling it is to sort of say, now, this is going to be difficult, but it's worth it. So are you really up to it? And it motivates people to buy into it. So I actually think not only is it a fallacy or a mistake, it's an, it's not an innocent mistake. I think it's, it's a, a way to sell books. Technique. It's a marketing yeah. technique. And you mm -hmm. find this in baby care and like, okay, you may think that this is just the easy, obvious solution, but here's the here's the harder, better path. And yeah. and if you're up to it, you can be one of the people who rise to a higher standard. Well, is it a is it a way to yeah. um to sort of politically castrate or make people quiescent? Because yeah. instead of fighting your boss or, or instead world. of fighting your husband, you're <laughs> fighting yourself. You waste you so know. much energy, time, wherewithal, and resources. And this is particularly true for women. So we know that women are disproportionately the ones who diet, the ones who will be affected by disordered eating, and that shades very quickly for about a quarter of people into eating disorders. That's an enormous amount of women changing their bodies or trying to change their bodies rather than change the world. And so it's just mm -hmm. a waste of resources, really, both because according to the studies that I've been citing, it, it looks like 
that's a fool's errand, that our bodies don't change a whole lot in the long term, that weight comes roaring back pretty inexorably once we stop mm-hmm. the diet or once we go off the weight loss drug. Even with Ozempic. Um, even with Ozempic, the weight will come roaring back if people discontinue it. And the vast majority of people have been discontinuing these drugs after a year, partly because of loss of food joy, partly because of side effects, partly because of prohibitive costs partly because of long-term consequences being pretty unknown. And yeah, partly Uh because um, staying on these drugs really robs people of a very basic and I would argue fundamental human good, which is taking pleasure in daily meals and connection and shared appetite and then shared fulfillment of appetite, often in the company of loved ones. So drugs like Ozempic and Wegovy, Smaglutides and similar classes of drugs they're A, not a magic bullet because they'll only take about 15% of people's weight off according to the most optimistic uh, estimates from the company, Novo Nordisk. But even if the estimate turned out to be correct, it will still leave fat people. A 300-pound person might become a 250-pound person. That's still a fat person. But also the second someone goes off the drugs, the weight regain, even according to the company, is, is pretty um, massive and immediate uh the weight mm-hmm. comes back so these drugs would have to be taken lifelong and that will have real costs and real health costs um in a lot of cases when they're taken purely for weight loss rather than for conditions like type 2 diabetes where they do seem to be very effective so mm-hmm. yeah i guess two points one we will always have fat people even if ozempic and we go live up to their probably overhyped promises And secondly, they won't because people tend to go off these drugs pretty quickly and then the weight comes back. So we're right where we started again. We still need to deal with our diverse bodies. So there was something, and Taylor, I hope we we had some banter before we came back from break, which I thought was pretty good banter. So I hope we can include it. Oh, yeah, we will. (laughs) Okay, so, but because... you know, we need we need some sort of uh, balance between oh, yeah. uh, banter and and hard, rigorous philosophical investigation. But <laughs> um, what I wanted to ask was this question of like that we should listen to hunger, mm. and and it's good if you're hungry to eat something because I've also heard this sort of moralistic thing, which I struggle with myself, which is like if I've worked out and I'm around my family and it's dinner, by all means I should eat something. If I'm up in the middle of the night trying to finish a script or an article and I find it would soothe me to eat a whole package of chocolate chip cookies, that I shouldn't listen to that because that's a kind of sick relationship to food. I should go and meditate or something or something mm-hmm. that's soothing myself to get work done with chocolate chip cookies and a Coca-Cola is is bad. You should obviously have a cigarette, Eric. Well, I, you know, it's cigarette funny. Cigarette and a whiskey. It's funny, you sh- it's funny you should say that. Uh, um, <laughs> I did, for the first time in my life the other day, finish off a cigar on my own. Did you? Um, on your first time on your own. Because I cigars with friends. <laughs> I saw, and then I there was a half a cigar yeah. left. And I was like, I want to I calm down. And I don't want to eat food uh-huh. maybe i'll finish this cigar it's pretty good honestly um, that makes so, me really sad as someone who actually took up smoking in order to lose weight among other oh, things yes. i was a really heavy smoker uh-huh. for years and years in oh really my early 20s i'd only lasted a few years but it was a very hard habit to break mm. and i also have a father who now has um a thyroidectomy a laryngectomy um his uh, larynx had to be removed for voice box cancer, which is usually caused by smoking. So oh dear. 
just to say smoking is really bad. Unlike eating, um, we have this attitude and I think Noom's um, distinction between different kinds of hunger really feeds into this, um, mm -hmm. this idea that we should only fuel our bodies and that eating for pleasure or comfort is illegitimate. But mm. that's a very strange idea, both historically and philosophically eating for pleasure and comfort and soothing and satisfaction these are very normal human bodily urges and the way that I look at it is that we have certain what I call bodily imperatives and that's where our bodies kind of yell even scream at us to do something if we're short on a particular thing like if I'm really struggling to breathe my bodily imperative will be to get a full lung full of air if I am touching a hot flame the bodily imperative will be to make the pain stop, to make the sensation of excess heat and burning stop. If I stand on an injured limb, my body will scream at me to get off of it. And if I'm really hungry or thirsty, my body will yell, even scream at me to eat something or drink something, respectively. Mm -hmm. So I think that hunger understood in that way is a kind of bodily imperative that is also constitutive of a moral imperative. It tells both others and ourselves what we should do, morally speaking. That's one of the reasons why hunger around the world matters so much, is that people's bodily imperatives are not being met, as well as the long-term consequences of food deprivation. But somehow, and, and not to suggest that dieting and the hunger and deprivation and sometimes starvation that results from when we get into the really disordered phase of this, not to suggest it's the exact same thing because being unable to access food is of course different from denying yourself food. I do think that's different and mm -hmm. denying yourself is not as bad in some ways, but it's still bad. It's still really bad. And I still think we should be concerned that we're denying our own bodily imperatives which should be understood as having this moral significance where there is something positively morally good in fueling our bodies and also listening to that authoritative voice of hunger that says, eat something, have the cookie, have the sleeve of cookies if that's what you need at a particular moment. And also relatedly, trust yourself that if you eat and regard yourself as entitled to eat, a lot of us find, and I have certainly found that the sense of fear involved in eating dissipates pretty quickly. Uh -huh. The sense that you need more and more and more is actually pretty fleeting. It, it happens for sure when you stop restricting, but you don't end up eating 17 boxes of cookies a day because that would be gross. <laughs> right. And eating when you're full is actually unpleasant for most people most of the time when, again, you're not artificially restricting and feeling really constrained by these forces well should so, i worry that that capitalism has come up with devious products like no. pepsi cola no <laughs> it's ultra processed foods get a lot of hype but recent studies show they're not even regarded as more palatable than unprocessed foods okay. so it's much more about people do go for foods that have a certain ratio of fat and carbohydrate to protein um and that are really yummy but Look, foods that are yummy have been around a long time. Have you tried buttered toast? Have you tried pasta with red sauce? Have you tried cake? 
like yummy yeah, foods are not new yeah. and ultra processed foods are not some like weird magical invention they're mostly a pretty classed and raced category it's not a very scientifically unified Oh, category interesting, interesting. and it is often going to include foods that we think of as very healthy like almond butter will be an ultra processed food Like tofu, tofu is tofu could not is be ultra more processed processed and yes. it's fine Yeah. it's not that much it's not either regarded as more palatable or some mystery blend that's going to addict you to food it's Okay. that's a lot of hype um Interesting. Well, interesting. I feel bad that I made a cigarette joke. So, Eric, I think you you should have your cookies. <laughs> Okay. Where have where the did cookie not the cigarette or cigar that's my Okay. the Okay. only medical advice i'm qualified <laughs> to give but okay. i feel Okay. i feel It's good cookie, in that uh, cigar, no. yeah yeah Um well, I feel I feel this was great. Is there any final words of of wisdom from either of you? No, I think that was great. I really enjoyed the conversation. I think we touched on a lot. And yeah, I hope the listeners enjoy it. But yeah, I really enjoyed it myself. Great. This was great. I'm glad we got to meet. I felt I kind of knew you from reading your books. Yeah, but yeah. I feel like nice we're to parasocial meet you in person. friends We're or parasocial. something. But Yeah. But yeah. um, I think this was a really good one. And uh, have a happy new year. You too. Happy New Year. Happy Okay, holidays. great. Great to talk. Yeah. Goodbye. Happy Happy holidays. holidays. Okay. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. This podcast is created by Eric Kaplan and Taylor Carman. It's edited by me, Taylor Carman, produced by Amanda Eberhardt, and the cover art is the work of Tony Millionaire. You can find us on Instagram, Facebook, and TikTok as Terrifying Questions.